when I look at this Chris Watts case, this is the thing that really hits me. If I jump up at 11 years old, an asthmatic kid jumps up. My father was six foot three, 220 pounds probably at that time. A man, you know, if I go into the bedroom when I hear the thuds and I see what had just happened, you've already dug one hole. It's not that hard to make it a little bit bigger to fit two or three bodies in. Uh, Hey guys, just wanted to give you a heads up on today's episode. Uh, I'm going to talk about something that might trigger some of you because it involves violence towards children. Um, I found what I'm about ready to talk about really disturbing, which is why I'm talking about it. Um, And, uh, you know, I just want to give you guys a heads up. So if you're not comfortable with the episode and you want to sit this one out, if this is a subject matter that is tough for you to swallow, totally cool, no worries. Um, And if you stick with us, I really hope you enjoy the episode. Testimony continued today in the most notorious criminal trial in Richland County history. Dr. John Boyle is accused of killing his wife, Noreen, and burying her body in the basement of his new home in Erie, Pennsylvania. The 12-year-old son finally took the stand. As I heard a scream, I heard a thud. It was about this loud. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty. When I was 12 years old, my testimony sent my father to prison for murdering my mother. This podcast serves as a type of therapy and reconciliation for myself. And it is my hope that it helps anyone who has experienced deception, betrayal, and dark trauma. I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Murder. Hey, movers, what's going on? Welcome back to another episode of Moving Past Murder. I'm your host, Collier Landry, and it is so good to see all of you, hear all of you, hear all your thoughts as you guys connect with me on social media, as we interact um, on my IG lives, all those fun things. Um, thank you all for tuning in. Thank you for your support. Thank you for liking and subscribing. If you're on YouTube, it's right here or there, or whatever. You follow me on Instagram at Call Your Landry, Twitter, all that. And uh, it's great. This is uh, we're all building this together, and it's really exciting. On that note, I want to encourage you guys to please, if you can. Contribute to this program. I have started a Patreon as of last week. It is patreon.com forward slash Collier Landry. All the proceeds go to help make content that I feel connects best with you guys, my audience. So uh, again, your support is so appreciated because uh, this is a lot of work and um, you guys help me create content that I feel that you guys are at least telling me is really valuable to you and it's very awesome, but um, your support is appreciated. Uh, okay. So speaking of support, I have somebody who's reached out to me on Instagram. It's our listener shout out of the week. And, um, this is from Kelly silver and she brings up a really interesting point that, um, I didn't think of. So I was recently on a podcast in the UK called the scary guy podcast. And we talked all things, uh, moving past murder, uh, of course. Right. And my life, but, uh, Kelly silver writes out to me on Instagram Hey, Collier, hope all is well. I just finished listening to your appearance on the Scary Guy podcast and something that was really that was said really stuck with me. When you were talking about getting strength from your mother, is it possible that she had some sort of gut feeling, whether she acknowledged it or not, that there was a possibility she wouldn't be around your entire life? And that possibly is why she raised you to be such a pillar of strength, even as a child. Just some thoughts that popped into my head while listening during my morning commute. 
looking forward to Tuesday's IG live. And, um, well, thank you, Kelly. And I believe as I mentioned on the podcast uh, on the scary guy podcast, I've mentioned on this podcast before is my mother had alluded to, um, saying something, um, where my father had arrived on new year's Eve, 1989. And he, <clears throat> he had arrived on new year's Eve, 1989. And he brought his grandmother or sorry, he brought his mother, my grandmother, and who was really close to my mother. And she was on the phone with a friend and said, well, he brought it. He can't kill me tonight. Cause he brought his mother. Um, as my mother would say, famous last words. Sorry if that's a bad pun, but my mother would have said that for sure. She was a big fan of saying famous last words. Um, anyways, so, uh, yeah, I think that there is some truth to that. I think that when I look, when I think about my mother and how she raised me, first of all, I'm really grateful with how she brought me up. <clears throat> I look at, and I'm not a father, full disclosure. I'm not a father. I'm a fur, fur daddy. But um, I think about the way that parents raise children. And um, again, I, I'm, I'm no expert in parenting, but I do see those that coddle their children and how those individuals turn out or, or how they interact with them in their life and those that aren't. And I was very disciplined by my mother. Uh, I'm sure that's not a surprise to anyone. So, but she treated me like a little adult. And I think that at the end of the day, that is why I became so resilient as a young man. Um, this last episode that we did with Dr. Dennis Marikis on the 18th of March, uh, we discussed, you know, him meeting me at that time and realizing that I, though faced with these challenging circumstances, I was able to sort of uh, face them head on, which was really cool. But I, I feel that that was a foundation that was laid, that was set, um, by my mother that was laid for me by my mother. And, um, it's a really cool, cool thing when you think about it. Um, and I'm very grateful for her. And of course I think about her every day. So, um, anyways, before I get all schmaltzy and I start crying, um, okay. So a friend of mine hit me up on text about a week and a half ago and said, Hey man, have you, uh, seen this documentary? Uh, American murder, the neighbor next door. And I was like, no, now full disclosure. I know that I talk about true crime. My whole life is true crime. I am not a huge true crime watcher of like murders and things like that. These things intrigue me for sure. I think I'm more like interested in things like the Tinder swindler or like financial crimes and how these people come up with these elaborate schemes that I kind of find interesting, you know, no, no lie. Um, but, uh, murders and things like that, like they hit a little too close to home. And that brings me to today's episode about Chris Watts and the murder of his wife, Shanann Watts and their two children. Um, I watched this documentary because he, my friend asked me multiple times. He's like, you got to watch this. You got to watch this. Um, and I literally texted him after I saw it because I couldn't sleep the rest of the night. Really? I try not to watch these things at night anyways, but sometimes you don't have a choice, but man, um, there are so many things that are just really hard to swallow or really hard to fathom in this case. Um, but I think for me, the thing that initially just caught me was the similarities between Chris Watts and my father. And when I think about what happened, look, in the Chris Watts case, you know, he 
he had a mistress as did my father. Um, it was a little different. Um, but it's, there were just so many parallels. So that's what I'm going to get into today's episode about. So let's get into it. So in this documentary, it's called American murder, the family next door, not the neighbor next door. Sorry about that. Um, so in this documentary, the uh, American murder, the family next door, um, the director, Jenny Popplewell, uh, explores the murder of Shanann Watts and her two daughters by Christopher Watts. And this is a very interesting documentary to me. Now, now, as a filmmaker, this is very interesting to me because the whole documentary is all actually pretty much all footage. Yeah, it's actually all footage from social media because Shanann had lupus, I believe, uh, so which is an autoimmune disease for those of you that aren't aware. Um, so she was suffering from lupus and she also had... Um, you know, had a very uh, big social media presence because of that. And she was talking to people about lupus and sharing her story to help others who have gone through similar circumstances. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Help them sort of deal with and reconcile with what they're, what they're going through with this physical, um, this physical ailment, right? The entire documentary is made up of all news footage, her footage from social media and, and then police body camera footage and some drone stuff. It's, Look, man, it is a really, really heavy film <laughs> and it's a heavy case. I remember it because it took place in Frederick, Colorado. That's the only thing I remembered, but I kind of put stuff like this out of my mind and it happened in 2018 and I was releasing a murder in Mansfield and I was traveling around. So I wasn't paying attention to a lot of this stuff. The thing that strikes me the most is when my friend said, you need to watch this. He, he was very adamant. He wanted to know, do I draw any parallels? And oh my God. Do I draw so many parallels between my father and Chris Watts? So much so that I have placed footage for us to listen to and go over of my father and of Chris Watts side by side so we can sort of examine these sociopaths really is what they are. Um, Chris, as you, if you don't know in the case, he murdered his whole family. He had a girlfriend that he wanted to start a new life with and he even talks about how um, I've watched some other things about this case leading up to this episode. He'll talk about how he was very excited to start a new life after he murdered his family. I mean, it's nuts. It, it's, it's, it's so disturbing. Um, it's crazy, but I want to play a couple of things, uh, three takes side by side, discuss them with you guys, because this is my take on Chris Watts and his, um, you know, what I perceive to be his, extreme sociopathy, uh, which is very unfortunate because people, you know, innocent people died and that sucks. Let's listen to this. I want them wherever they're at. Like I have no inclination to where they're at right now. And it's just like, there's, it's like, it's vanished. Like she's not like when I got home yesterday, it was like a ghost town. Like she wasn't here. Kids weren't here. Like, I have no idea like where they went. So, First off, this is an interview with Chris, which took place a day after his wife disappeared. So essentially what happened is the, um, the, the family disappeared. She was supposed to, she, the Shanann was supposed to go to like a, a doctor's appointment. She didn't show up for the doctor's appointment. The best friend called, they couldn't find her. The whole family was gone. He was at work. He comes home. There's body camera footage of him. Like then he finds her phone. Then he's like, everything's gone. Everything's gone. And so this is the local news station talking to him, 
basically. And he's saying, you know, I just want her back or I don't know what happened. And it's just, it just, it gets creepier. And it doesn't, it's just earth shattering. I don't feel like this is even real right now. It's like a nightmare that I just can't wake up from. Well, okay. It's a nightmare he can't wake up from. Well, um, hey buddy, you caused the nightmare. So yeah, like I said, it's very disturbing. So he goes on. Yeah, I had the kids over the weekend. Did you see your wife when she got home? Uh, she got home really late, about 2 a.m. from the airport. So apparently what happened is, is uh, Shanann had gone on a business trip to like Arizona or something. They live in Colorado um, for a business that she was doing. She was coming back and then this was the, the reporter asking him, when was the last time you saw your wife? What's interesting is now I have my father on the witness stand talking about the last time he, quote, saw my mother. Did you have occasion to see, talk to Noreen? early morning of December 31st of 1989. Yes, I was on the sofa uh, in the family room and Noreen came down and woke me up. Um, she started uh, hollering, uh, Jack, 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 and uh, uh, threw credit cards at me. First of all, for those of you that don't know my mother, my mother, my mother would have never thrown credit cards at my father. She never would have, <laughs> she never would have let them leave her hands. That's the first thing, if she was leaving. Did she leave the house then? Mm -hmm. Yes, she did. So I walked down the driveway. I ran back to the uh, uh, table that sits there in the family room, put my glasses on and ran back again to see where she was going. What did you see? Uh, by the time I got there, I saw Noreen get into a car at the edge of the driveway. Left in that car? Left in that car. So here is my father. Uh, explaining how, what the last time, the last interaction he had with my mother was. She got in a, they got into a fight. She threw credit cards at him. Now this is at his trial, mind you. So if you're listening, this is at my father's murder trial. This is approximately January or I'm sorry, June 23rd, 1990. Um, he decided to take the witness stand because, <laughs> and they always say that you shouldn't take the witness stand in your own defense, but because he's a narcissist and a sociopath and he thought everyone would believe him and he was smarter than everyone else. He took the witness stand to say all this fucking bullshit, um, <laughs> which is this whole situation of this fight that happened and all this. Now, this was the last interaction that he had with her. So I'm going to back up just a little bit. And then I'm going to go back to Chris Watts. So the first thing is, is a lot of people ask me when they see the movie, a murder in Mansfield, which we're going to play some more of, 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 of the scene with my father and I in prison. He said, she came at him with a knife and this, that, and the other. Well, has he been saying that the whole time? No, this is the court testimony. This is him at the witness stand talking about the last time he saw my mother. There's no knife. There's no engagement. There's no, he pushed her. There's none of that. So for those of you that have seen the film or that are wondering when he's talking about the knife thing, I take you back to his trial when he's literally saying the last interaction I had with her, she threw credit cards at me and was yelling at me and then, or hollering as he puts it, and then got in a car. He had to get his glasses. Then he saw her get into the car at the end of the driveway. Our driveway was probably um, maybe 50 yards long. And the dead of winter, mind you, this is January. This would have been January. I'm sorry, December 31st, 1989. So 
you know, my mom just trotted out to the car and got in. <laughs> they didn't even come up to the house. You know, it's it's ridiculous. Obviously, he's lying because he murdered her. Um, but uh, this is this is the sociopath at work. So you have Chris Watts literally saying to a reporter, you know, this is what this is what happened. And he's spinning his web. He's spinning his his tail of, you know, I just want her back in the nightmare. And, uh, you know, I give anything to have him back. In fact, let's go to my next little part. So this is, again, the same interview. This is the day after he has murdered his entire family. And he's talking to the news media. Let's check it out. I want them here. Like, this house is not the same. I mean, I last night was traumatic. Last night was... I, I can't really stay in this house again, like, with nobody here. Poor guy cannot stay in his house with nobody here after he killed them all. This, this doesn't seem real at all. It just seems like I'm, I'm living in a nightmare and I can't get out of it. Well, I mean, he is right. He is living in a nightmare that he cannot get out of because he committed this heinous atrocity to his own family. Um, but this is something, so our last episode, which uh, aired on May 18th was when I talked to do Dr. Dennis Marikis. We discussed narcissism, sociopathy. We discussed how all of that has related uh, to my father in my film, A Murder in Mansfield. And, um, you know, there is a very, uh, there is a very odd sort of phenomena that happens with these people. And that is called the victim narcissist. And this guy Chris Watts is trying to say uh, is trying to turn us draw us in as he's trying to draw the reporters in to tell his tale of uh, whatever bullshit he's shilling here um, that he misses his family that he killed and it, it's it's victim narcissism so he what he's doing is he's he's trying to he's trying to get your sympathy like oh poor dad doesn't have his wife doesn't have his this and that that's what he's doing. So now I'm going to play a clip from a murder in Mansfield where I confront my father. I read him a letter that he had sent back to me when I was uh, 13 years old. It was in 1993. And I had asked him in this letter, and I read this letter to him in the film. But in this particular letter, I asked him if he could just please confess to murdering my mother so I can move on with my life, so my family can move on with my life, so his girlfriend, Sherry, at the time, could move on with, his, with, her, with her life. Uh, for my sister, my, my half-sister that was born 12 days before he was arrested, she could move on, all, that we could all have this peace. Could you please just grant us that this peace? That's what I asked him. And I read him this letter in the film because he sent this letter back to me and wrote on the envelope, refused. He read it put it back in the envelope, wrote refuse, sent it back to me. And I always kept it like I kept, I have, like I said, 500 of his letters sitting here underneath my desk. And, um, you know, I read these on the program, but this is a very key letter that I read to him in prison. And this is his take on this. Again, the victim narcissist. Let's check it out. I can't give you an explanation why I refused that in 1993, but I think it's fair to say I was angry about a lot of things. He was angry. I was in a spot, probably broken as I could possibly be, low as I could possibly be, uh, away from family and friends. Away from family and friends in a situation that you created. 
significant enough that uh, I had considered killing myself. I had considered suicide. Now, <laughs> when I heard that, when he was telling me that in the film, in the room, as it's laying out, I was like, oh my God. I'm a very forgiving person. I have forgiven my father. I move because as, as I've explained before, as I will continue to explain, forgiveness is, is about you, not about them. You're not giving up any power by moving on from that. I mean, this program is called moving past murder for a reason. And it's dealing with these challenging circumstances that you are faced in, in, you know, these seemingly insurmountable odds and, and a way to get past them. And, you know, part of that is to sort of take yourself out of it and go, you're not giving anything up. It's not about them. <laughs> it's about you and you leading. And, and, and many of you have reached out uh, acknowledging this and, and finding the same, you know, peace in your own lives by doing just that. Right. Um, so I commend you guys for that. I'm glad that I can lead by example. But again, part of me, my empathetic self was like, oh, my dad, my, you know, I, I felt bad at that moment of like, oh, uh, wow, you thought about killing yourself. What if that had happened? And then part of me was like, are you kidding me? Like, like you thought about killing yourself. What about your son that thought about killing himself? You know, um, uh, it was literally going, I have no mother, no father, no home, no dog, no this, no that. My whole way of life is uprooted. How about that? Or how about your family? How about the girlfriend? How about all these people, right? Again, it's the victim narcissist because it's all about them. And that's why I, you know, I'm not here to give you the play-by-play -play on the Chris Watts case, but I am pointing out these things that I find very similar to my father's case where I go, Oh, this is like, this is some hard shit to swallow. Um, because these people do this. So he's trying to, you know, Chris Watts is trying to get the media to feel sorry for him. And he's trying to obviously spin this web of what happened to his wife. I think, you know, it only took like, this was like a pretty, pretty like, well, yeah, this is what happened. I mean, there's a scene in the film and it's on the police officer's body camera footage because what happens is the hysterical were not hysterical. She wasn't hysterical in the film, but she was very concerned. She didn't get a phone call from her friend and they had, they had traveled the night before um, in from Arizona. She had gotten in late. She was supposed to go to her doctor's appointment because she had lupus. So she needed to have routine health checkups and her friend was concerned about her. Oh, I'm sorry. Also, she was pregnant. What I find just, just so reprehensible about all of that is they are, are is, you know, so he, he thought he could just get away with this. And then the friend comes to the house, the friend can't get in. Then she calls the cops. The cops are like, well, we can't go in until he arrives. So he arrives. And then the neighbor has like a, has a good neighbor. You know, I have cameras at my house and I've had neighbors say, Oh, can you look at your camera? Cause somebody stole my bicycle or something, you know, as a good neighbor, they had a camera and they were showing his truck. And you know, this guy is like freaking out in his head. Like, oh my God, here we are with the cops. It's on the body camera footage. We're watching his television of his CCTV and it shows my truck and you don't see anything. You don't see him like taking bodies out or anything to the truck. So Chris leaves. This is the first time the police come to the house. As soon as he leaves, neighbor looks at the cop literally on the body camera footage. He goes, he's acting really funny. Like he's acting really strange. I mean, this guy's got it written all over his face, which means that like at that point, I mean, I think if you're a reasonable or a rational person, well, first of all, if you're a reasonable, rational person, you do not do something like this. That's the first thing. 
But the second thing is, you think that you're probably caught. But oh no, oh no, oh no. It, of course, it wouldn't be that easy. Of course, he wouldn't have that much dignity and respect for his slain wife, children, her family, the community that's all rallied around, concerned about his missing wife and children, the police officers, all of these people. Of course, he can't do that. Of course, he can't say, I mean, just like my father, it's a missing person's case. And without his son screaming to hold that my mother was murdered, nobody listens, right? Here we have... The same thing, Chris Watts, he is literally, so the police, the police bring him to the police station and they say, we want you to take a lie detector test. And this woman's administering the lie detector test. And I would love to talk to her. I'm just curious what was going through her head. Cause she, everyone knows that this guy did something. They don't know what he did or what the extent was, but you know, something happened, right? So she gives him this lie detector test, which he fails miserably because he's lying. You know, what, do you know what happened to her? Did you cause anything to make her disappear? Like they're asking all these, you know, provocative questions and, you know, he's being very prevaricative in it. And, you know, and, oh, I don't know and this and that. And he doubles down on it, which is the crazy thing. She comes into the room. She's like, you already know that you failed the lie detector test. So now let's get in, let's get real. Let's get real, dude, about what really happened. Why don't you tell us what happened so we can wrap this up? And he's still saying, like, uh, I don't I, I don't know why I failed the lie. He's still trying to perpetrate the lie because he's convincing himself, right? And this is what I want to talk about because this is really crazy. So let's listen. We know that something happened to all three of them. But I want to know if something happened to these baby girls first that you had to take into your own hands and deal with. You had to clean it up for If you guys didn't quite understand that. So basically is the investigator, the female investigator that administered the lie detector test is saying to him, hey, um, we know that something happened. This is the amazing thing to me about people that perpetrate these crimes. These investigators, these police officers deal with people all day, every day. Some of them are obviously better than others, but this is an investigator. I believe this is like the, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, which is like right below the FBI. So these people have a little bit of a clue, know how to profile people. This guy ain't throwing them anything new that they've never seen before. Like they know, they already know. They're just like, please, buddy, just make it, make it easy on us. But what she does is she gives him the out. So she says, what I want to know is what happened first. And what she's insinuating is, did Shanann, the mother, kill the kids and then you killed her in retaliation? Which we know, by the way, is not the case. But again, victim narcissist here. He latches on to this idea and he's like, oh, okay. And later, according to court documents, the reason why he latched onto this story is because the female investigator brought it up to him or investigators brought up that, oh, the wife could have, could have killed the kids. So therefore you took, you know, cowboy justice and, you know, killed your wife because she killed your kids. There's so many things wrong with this. First of all, that he's and, and we're going to listen to the next part because what they do is they brought his dad. So he lives in Colorado. His dad, lives, he's from like North Carolina or South Carolina. His dad flies out obviously as a good father. And I have to say they're being very cool when you're watching them <laughs> like they're not like pounding that it's not like a scene out of like csi or something or they're grabbing them oh, okay no it's not that they're very calm and collected and 
obviously because they knew they had him, like I said, dead to rights. But so they bring his dad in and they, you know, they're, so his dad sits down with him and this is what this guy says. So he initially says in the beginning, I don't want to protect her, meaning that he's not going to protect her anymore because she perpetrated killing the kids. And then the dad's like, so she hurt them. And he says, yeah. And then he whispers as if they're not like taping in the room. And then I killed her. This is where it goes like well beyond the pale, right? This is a guy who not only has committed this heinous act, but he has doubled down on this lie that the investigators like put in his brain. Like, Oh yeah, that makes total sense. Like, Oh yeah. And I can remember when I was a kid, when my mother went missing, I said, where is my mother? I'm talking to my father. And we did this brainstorm session and I, I said something where my mom wanted to always go to Toronto and uh, which is ironic because uh, my film premiered at the uh, 2018 Hot Docs Film Festival. I actually have a tattoo from the film festival. It's logo right here that I got while I was up there. It was the 25th year of the festival. It was really amazing. Um, and my mother's place that she wanted to take me when I was a kid was always Toronto. So, you know, it was a cool little symbiotic thing that happened anyways um, to be able to present the film there. And it was really well received. It's such a great festival. Hot docs. You were amazing. Thank you. Um, anyways, we had this brainstorm session and my dad was like, Oh yeah, well maybe mommy. Yeah. She could have gone to, to Toronto. Yeah. 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 That's a good, good idea. So he started like latching on and I call this like the grabbing at straws sort of defense, right? They, they, they're trying to, they're like, Oh, that's a great idea. Oh yeah. That's what happened because they already know. And they're, also so wrapped up in their own um, deceit of themselves and they're believing the story and they're selling that, that narrative to you, hoping that you'll buy it as the investigator, as the court or whatever. And they're so convinced, like they're so convincing, which is just scary. We're going to listen to this excerpt and just see again, a similarity with a son confessing to his father, right? Some bullshit. And now a father confessing to his son some bullshit. And Mike I killed her by accident. Uh, yeah, by accident. But I don't believe you. It doesn't make any sense. You know, Elizabeth gave a statement that Guga's daddy came in and hit mommy and wrapped her up like a snowman and showed the investigators how they wrapped her, how the body was wrapped so, up. So um, what I'm referring to there is my, uh, my, my adopted sister who was adopted from Taiwan six months before my mother was killed, used to leave her bed in the middle of the night and go into my mother's room and sleep in her bed. So she had explained, Guga, by the way, means brother in, um, in Chinese, in Mandarin Chinese. So that's why I say Guga. So she used to call me Guga as uh, when she was little, right? Uh, I mean, I haven't seen her in 30 years or whatever, but anyways, it's an unfortunate consequence of all of this <laughs> um, is the family gets destroyed. Um, but no, but in all seriousness, so that's what Guga means. So she had told Dave Messmore, you know, wrapped her up like a snowman, showed this, and that was like a huge thing. Now, obviously, she was three years old, and they weren't going to have her testify. Um, but that was something that was like, oh, for me, it's less about like what she says and what she saw. 
than what she saw, which this still haunts me to this day. Hey, um, you know, Elizabeth or now Caitlin, if you're watching this, this bothers me every single day. And I hope that you're okay. Like straight up all just, if you are listening to this, I just pray that you're okay. You don't ever have to talk to me again. I just pray that you're okay. Okay. Uh, or ever see me again. I don't, I, I don't care. I just want to know you're all right. That's it because this is really hard. And, um, and I know you were there and it f fucking makes me, <laughs> it makes me really sad that, that you witnessed this. Um, you didn't deserve that. None of us deserve this anyways, but okay. Anyways, um, I digress. Uh, again, so I'm trying to present this to my father and, and here we go with more of the, the, uh, the story. She was in the bed. So again, do you really want to tell me what happened? I've told you what happened, Collier. I did not kill mommy. I did not kill my wife in the bedroom. It was downstairs when I pushed her because I really believe she was coming to kill me. Now, let's just unpack all of that. <laughs> so again, here's a narrative that he latches onto. Um, again, this denial, but there's something that's really key. And I didn't even think about this earlier, but this is something that there's a moment in the film when I'm talking about, like I had seen the case file of my mother's body. And I talk about the skull being crushed. I don't know if it was or not. I can't really remember at the time, but I know that I said that because it was a very dramatic thing. So one of the things that I have noticed with my father and people like him is that what they do is they latch onto like the tiniest detail, right? And if they can prove, you know, it was uh, Professor Professor Green in the uh, in the billiards room with the candlestick at at the stroke of midnight. Nope, it wasn't the stroke of midnight. It was one a.m. So you got the time wrong. So it wasn't Professor Green with the candlestick in the billiard room. You know what I mean? They think that like if you get one minor detail wrong, then therefore they're innocent or th their story somehow holds water. It's very odd. Um, so again, he's trying to say, well, you know, I didn't kill her. I didn't kill her upstairs in the bedroom. But downstairs when she came in, I thought she was coming to kill me. So why don't you take me to the trial? <laughs> and he's saying essentially. What did you see? Uh, by the time I got there, I saw Noreen get into a car at the edge of the driveway. Left in that car? Left in that car. So again, the whole thing and the whole reason why I play this is because there is, you know, <laughs> they latch on to these things and they're just trying to sell it. But again, you know, there's my father 26 years later telling me a whole different story because he's had 26 years to sort of figure it out. So when I look at this Chris Watts case, this is the thing that really hits me. My sister was in the bed. I believe I'm asleep. I hear my father's footsteps walk down the hall, but let's just take it back for a second. If I jump up at 11 years old, an asthmatic kid jumps up. My father was six foot three. 220 pounds probably at that time. A man, you know, if I go into the bedroom when I hear the thuds and I see what had just happened, 
you've already dug one hole. It's not that hard to make it a little bit bigger to fit two or three bodies in. Um, and that's why I've talked about like when I, when his footsteps and I could see them out of my peripheral vision while I'm sleeping, I could see his feet in the doorway. I was like, don't look up. Like I felt like my mother was saying, do not look up because I feel like if I had gone like this, I wouldn't be sitting here. Cause again, you've already dug the hole, man. It's not hard to throw another body in there. It really isn't. And I know that's a really sad way to look at it, but look, this is my life. And when I, you know, for me, probably the most poignant detail of the Chris Watts case was the fact that he killed those kids. And I don't, I'm not going to get into how that happened, but it was gruesome. And he discusses how their voices haunt him. And I say, good, <laughs> as they should. Um, it, it's, it, it, for me, that's probably what hit home is that that could have been me at any moment. And that's a really sobering thought to sort of take away. Or it could have been my sister too, which f fortunately was not. Um, as I discussed earlier in the program, um, forgiveness, <laughs> Uh, I know this was a lot to take in and playing the sound bites and things like that. I really hope you guys like that. I, I like doing this. I think it was really cool. I've never done this before in an episode. So for me, I found this really beneficial to show some visuals and some more audio, uh, for you guys. But look, um, this is what I want you guys to take away from this. First of all, the families of not only Shanann's family, and I don't know, I can't remember her maiden name, but Shanann's family, but also the Watts family. You know, they were in the courtroom. They were there when he was sentenced. And finally, when it went to trial, he just, I don't even think he, I think he just pled guilty and was like, as someone who has been through this, it is not lost on me how difficult it is to reconcile losing someone you love, losing a daughter, losing a sister, losing a daughter-in-law, losing your grandchildren, your nieces, your, your, your nieces. Um, I hope that they've, I mean, it's been what, three, four years. I mean, and we've dealt with a global pandemic and now we're in the middle of a war. I mean, it's, the world is a very, scary and dark place sometimes, but on the flip side, and this is what I want you guys to take away from this episode and from, from me doing this show, the world is also an amazing place, an amazing and beautiful place. And I know there are dark things that happen, but I am living proof that it gets better and that you can make a difference in your small little corner of the world. Anyways, I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Murder. Thanks, y'all. This podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible. Find us on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Collier Landry. 
The film A Murder in Mansfield is available on Investigation Discovery, Discovery Plus, and Amazon Prime Video. This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio in association with RSA Entertainment. Please visit mpmpodcast.com to show your support today.